You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 746 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, on a Wednesday evening, and joining me momentarily will be Ben Ladner of Sports Illustrated to continue our series, breaking down the Hawks roster and reviewing play, looking ahead, all that fun stuff. Before we get to Ben, I would take a second to tell you to check out the entire Locked On Podcast Network, ranging from, of course, this podcast to Locked On Falcons, Locked On Braves, if you're, a, if you're an Atlanta sports fan, Locked On NBA. Uh, there's a new uh, NBA draft podcast with Chad Ford, formerly of ESPN. He is now back in the space, uh, Hollinger and Duncan, all kinds of podcasts all over the network, and I'm also going to plea with you now. I know I always say this, but please subscribe to this podcast. Please leave five-star feedback. We're trying to do a little bit of a, of a push right now. I know it's sort of counterintuitive in some ways because there's not a whole lot going on, but as you probably know by listening to this podcast, if you have been recently, we're still trying to crank out two, three shows a week at minimum, talking about the NBA draft and Hawk stuff and whatever else is going on, so hopefully you guys will appreciate that. Please click the subscribe button. Please tell a friend or two about the show. I really appreciate all of the growth and everybody listening to the pod as always. Thank you sincerely for all of your investment in the show. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with Ben Ladner about a trio of Hawks Wings. Ben, thank you for joining me for part three of five. It's been a little while, almost three weeks. That's all my fault. I had other things to get to and, uh, you know, network things to tend to, but uh, you were faithful in joining me once again. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. It's all good. By the looks of it, we're going to have nothing but time over the next uh, few weeks or months or however long this lasts. So, uh, it was no inconvenience at all to have to wait a little while. Yeah, and these are not urgent either, which is, uh, they make for good um, pandemic content because they're not really changing. It's kind of, you know, guys are guys have played their basketball. They will be free agents or not, et cetera, et cetera. So it's uh, good to uh, sort of get through and review a little bit and spend some time, and I appreciate you doing it. As always, if you missed the first couple of episodes, we cover the bigs, uh, ranging from John Collins and Clint Capella all the way down to Scalabessier, Damian Jones, etc. Um, on the next two of these, with Ben and I, we'll be doing the wings. And today, our uh, our trio of players is DeAndre Bembry, Travion Graham, and and with Cam Reddish. And then the next one after this, uh, sort of split split up, split up the big guys a little bit. Uh, we'll go with DeAndre Hunter. Um, Kevin Herter, Vince Carter, who was, was kind of kind of cheating to have Vince on the wings, but because Vince is going to retire, we'll spend very little time on Vince. And then uh, Charlie Brown, because he's part of the roster. So, uh, yeah, the three guys today, you know, two obvious role players. I would say non-zero chance to be back, but we'll talk about that later on. And then, of course, Cam is the headliner. Um, you know, before we get into the individual guys here, Ben, I wanted to ask you, what do you make of the wings overall on this team? Like a lot of time was spent with you and I and others talking about how bad center was, for instance, all, all throughout the season and the wings, you know, they weren't as big of a problem, but at the same time, you had a lot of minutes um, assigned to a pair of rookies who were lottery picks, but still rookies. And then also guys like Bembry and guys like Graham and even Charlie Brown a little bit. And there was a lot of, uh, I would say peripheral minutes that were not exactly the most high end on the wing. So what do you make of the, of the whole group this year? Yeah, it was one of those positions where like you, you look at it and you think, Oh, well their wings aren't really that great. And you look at the bigs and you say, well, yeah, the bigs aren't really that great either. 
you look at backup point guard and you say, it's not really that great. And then you, you figure out the only good player on the team is Trey Young, at least until John Collins came back. So uh, it was, if, if you look at it through sort of uh, the totality of the NBA, the Hawks did not really have a good positional group this year except point guard. Um, but it, wing, I think, was it was reasonably strong at the top, at least strong in the sense that there were three guys that you looked at and said, okay, these are three exciting young players. And then after that, it just it really dropped off. You get into Bembry and Vince and Travion Graham, and I mean, you mentioned Charlie Brown, who barely played. Um, so you know those guys were were obviously a little more ancillary to the team. Um, and, but even the, the the top you know three guys that I mentioned, Hunter, Herter, and Reddish, had their struggles at various points in the year. So uh, ultimately, you know, they got it together, and and I, I think this was by the end of the season a position of of relative strength because they could play three of those wings at the same time and, and feel com- like comfortable and confident with them on the floor. But for a lot of the year, whether due to injury or whether due to just rookie struggles or whatever it was, uh, this, like many uh, positional groups on the Hawks, was not a position that inspired a lot of confidence. <laughs> yes, that's well said. Uh, and we'll uh, we'll dive in here. We'll go one at a time as we have been going. Uh, we'll start with Yandere Bembry, who is sort of a weird and fascinating uh, tale. Uh, Bembry by the way, played all 82 games in his third season. It was uh, kind of a nice story after he had been banged up for his first two years after being a first-round pick. He played in every game last year. He wasn't fantastic, but it certainly was a step forward for Bembry, which led to some optimism uh, in year four. But he was banged up at the end of the year, uh, missed the last 23 games with a couple of different injuries. And now he'll be a free agent. Um, and by the way, he's he's actually kind of old for a guy who is considered to be a young player end of his rookie scale contract, Bembry will be 26th in July, which is kind of the problem, if you want to say that, that that's a problem with drafting an older college player, is that when they get to the end of their first deal, you know, they're kind of old already. And that's not, you know, he's not over the hill. He obviously can have the chance to be an NBA player still. But a guy who got banged up, and obviously we'll talk about his play, but has uh, at least one glaring weakness that he still has not addressed. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Bembry. I think um, I'm sort of burying the lead a little bit, and just to say that, you know, I think he will not be back with the Hawks probably, but it's not impossible. He is, um, if the Hawks wanted to tender him a qualifying offer, it'd be $3.75 million, and I can't imagine that actually happening. That's more than I think he will get. I think Bembry might be in the league. But um, do you have broad thoughts on DeAndre Bembry before we sort of dive into his particulars? Yeah, I mean, he's he's one of those guys that I think you're happy to have on a bad team. You know, he does enough on, on defense, especially, where he, he can be disruptive um, and, and active but I, I think his limitations become a little bit more pronounced the better his team becomes. And that's especially because of his offense where he just can't shoot. Uh, he's, you know, he, he's found ways to sort of get around that lack of shooting. Uh, but again, I think as, as the team becomes better, as his role becomes you know, more diminished on the team as it improves, like he's just not as valuable a player to have. And so I think for the kind of jump that the Hawks are hoping to take next season— he, he loses a lot of value on that team relative to this past year's team. And it was a shame that he was injured for so much of this year because we just didn't really get to see him in the second half of the season. Not that he would have been, you know, a key piece, but he was providing minutes like, you know, not quality, but capable minutes when he was healthy, which for this team was was kind of a godsend. Um, but, you know, he, he's got elements of his game that I like, but it's just he, he doesn't have he doesn't have the shooting. And, and like I said, there there are times where sort of he'll he'll attack a closeout or he'll he'll sort of catch the ball on the move or he'll pump fake or he'll 
you know, unleash a nice crossover to get to the rim and, and find ways around that lack of shooting. But there were just too many moments this year where it's high pick and roll, help defense comes over, swing to Bembry, wide open in the corner, and he misses a corner three. I mean, just these record scratch moments that, like, he's got to take that shot, you know, and, and whoever is in that position has to take that shot. But if it doesn't go in, like, it's he's hurting you by being out there on offense. So I think he turned into a liability on offense this season, especially in, in that sort of heliocentric offense that the Hawks run. You know, I, I think he's a better fit in a more dynamic, off, or at least a more egalitarian offense where people mm-hmm. are cutting and they're screening and they're doing stuff off the ball. Uh, the Hawks run a little bit more of a static system, which is fine because they have a player who can who can run that system and you can run that system through. But players like Bembry, I think, do lose value in that system. And so I'm with you. I think it's probably unlikely he's a Hawk. Although if it gets to the point where they just need to fill out the roster with another wing and he doesn't have a, a huge market, maybe they bring him back at a minimum um, and kind of go from there. I'm not sure. Yeah, I know Lloyd Pierce has always liked Bembry. He's always been uh, um, complimentary of Bembry, I think, just because of the energy that Bembry plays with. But to your point about his offense, I mean, the shooting is what it is. It's the number one thing that he's always been, even as a draft prospect, that was the number one thing that people were worried about with him, and with good reason. He now, in four seasons, granted some of that's limited sample size, but still four seasons worth, has a 50% career true shooting, which is pretty brutal for a wing um, in a small volume role. Um, you know, you mentioned corner threes. This is a small sample size, but he was seven of 32, according to cleaning the glass this year on corner threes. That is very bad. Um, <laughs> very, very, very bad. Um, and, you know, free throw shooting is a, usually a pretty good indicator about perimeter shooting. He's a career 15 59% free throw shooter, which is terrible for a wing, too. It's just he can't shoot. And that's we can do all the th- different things around it. It just leads to various inefficiencies. I think it's a good point that you're making, actually, about the fit with Bembry, he was drafted into an office with Mike Budenholzer um, that would have fit a lot better for him. Um, I'm not sure it would have saved everything because at the, at the end of the day with someone who's, you know, six, five, like he is a smaller wing, you got to be able to shoot, but it would help him as someone who does have some ball skills, some creation skills to play in that, uh, a different system than what the Hawks are doing, but obviously you're not going to tailor it to Bembry. So also too many turnovers, like just offensively, He's a pretty severe negative, and you know to be positive about it, defensively he's actually quite good. I mean that's something that I always wanted to point out. I think he took a little bit of a step back this year. I thought he was probably better in year three than he was in year four defensively, but still a guy who generates a lot of blocks and steals for his position. Eighty uh, ninth percentile according to cleaning the glass in block rate and ninety fifth percentile in steal rate. That's very very good. He's too aggressive sometimes. He fouls too much, but he rates out really well on defensive metrics. Uh, the advanced stuff, the all-in-one metrics, always like him defensively. And the Hawks were much better when he played defensively. But sort of the headliner and the thing that I think probably matters the most is that the Hawks were about 10 points worse per 100 possessions when he played on offense. Um, just That's just offensively. But he kind of just kills your offense. And you can't take that on this Hawks team where you already didn't have, you already didn't have, have enough shooting, as we talked about a lot. But uh, just as a bad fit, and, and unless he becomes even just a, if he was below average as a shooter, you'd take that. Right now, he's well below that even, and that's it's just tough to sell. Yeah, and, and he's got some off the dribble capability where he can, you know, he can get downhill. Like I said, attack closeouts, get to the rim, finish with either hand. Um, he's a decent passer, you know, like yeah. when when he can sort of catch, take a dribble, and make a good decision, or you know, catch in, in sort of the short corner and and be a pivot man from there. Like he can be capable in a lot of that stuff. It's just the ball doesn't move enough in Atlanta's offense to to really fit him into that. And then again, it like 
if you can't shoot, you're not getting the respect from the defense to really maximize that off the dribble ability. You're not getting the respect to, you know, free up those passing lanes because defenders are just laying so far off of you that you really. There were times where he had no choice to shoot, but you know that's that's obviously the the least favorable choice from Atlanta's perspective, and and that's that's kind of the the big pitfall with a guy like him is you just force him to shoot. He's got to take the shot because it's a wide open shot, but like it's just it, it's not a good outcome. <laughs> It's not. And I, I've always liked DeAndre. I liked the pick when it happened. I think it was a perfectly reasonable draft pick when it happened at 21 in a pretty bad draft in 2016. Um, but, you know, as far as Atlanta's concerned, like you said, like if it was a minimum and you needed to just, to just fill out the roster, I wouldn't mind that at all. I do think um, Bembry is someone who should get another deal somewhere. Um, granted, it should be for the minimum and probably a one-year deal for the minimum. But I think first-round pick... Um, that has some skills, you know, defensively especially, like he's good on guards defensively, um, definitely above average in that category. When you have, you, you, he at least has one marketable skill. If a team buys it, they might be able to fix his jump shot. I could see him getting another shot somewhere in the NBA. Um, but at the same time, I don't I don't see it being a lucrative offer and uh, the qualifying offer just won't be given by the Hawks. So he's going to be, he'll be, he'll be hitting the market regardless. And I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll be rooting for him. I've always liked DeAndre. Um, just candidly, I've always enjoyed him uh, talking to him and good story and all that stuff. But um, he's just not not the guy that the Hawks need on the wing right now. So I think uh, I would guess he will probably move on. I agree. Yeah, good guy to talk to in the locker room, especially early in the season when he was playing. He was always a good guy to talk to after games. Um, I wonder if bringing the Afro back would help his game. I'm not sure, um, but I would like to see him bring that back as well. I'll also add he had some pretty sweet reverse dunks this year. Which which I enjoyed, but uh, yeah, outside of that, it, it's uh, you you kind of hit the nail on the head with the rest of it. Yep, there we go. Um, all right, we're gonna take a quick break and we'll come back to talk about Travion Graham and of course Cam Reddish. So hold on tight. All right, Ben, uh, it's Travion Graham time. Uh, a personal favorite of mine. I've always liked Travion. Um, to set the stage, just like we did with Bembry, um, this is a guy who's gonna be hitting for agency. He's 26. He'll be 27 in October. Um, kind of similar in that uh, shooting is by far his weakest point, uh, but but certainly a different player, and that Graham is more of this, like, he's a bigger, more physical defender. Um, a pure role player, obviously, does have a little bit of shooting success on his resume. That's pretty uh, small. He had one good outlier season and actually was okay in Atlanta this year shooting the ball from three, but on a very small sample size. But a guy who I think the Hawks liked to have around, uh, a good voice, a good veteran to have, even though he's kind of a younger veteran, um, definitely a way-down-the-depth chart kind of player. But what do you make of Trevion Graham uh, in these small sample size that we got to see him in Atlanta after he arrived uh, via trade? The big thing that stood out to me is he just plays really hard. Um, and I think that's you know, that was welcome for this team who, you know, not to say that they didn't play hard or they were lazy, but there were just times where they just didn't seem to have the, the punch that you need to win. And I think he was a guy that no matter what the opponent, no matter what the score, he would always bring that. Um, obviously, the shooting limitations kind of prevent how effective he can be, even when he is playing hard. But that translated on the defensive end. Uh, I remember him being a pretty decent offensive rebounder. I would need to check the numbers on that. But I feel like I, I want to say he was, you know, he could stick his, his nose in there and get some second chances. Um, he showed a little bit of an off the dribble game at times, where he would attack a closeout and kind of get his shoulder into the defender and create some space for like a floater or kick it back out, collapse the defense and find a shooter. Um, so he he can do some things on the offensive end, like you said, that one sort of outlier season, really two in Charlotte, where he shot the ball okay from deep. Um, you know, that's kind of what you hold on to if you're a Graham optimist. 
And and like you, I think I am. Um, although there's mounting evidence that he's really not that kind of shooter. And I think, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was on a super small sample size. He, he wasn't really taking a ton of threes. So he's probably closer to a below average shooter than he is to a 40% shooter, like those raw percentages would suggest. Um, but I still think he's useful. He's got the defensive versatility to really help you. He can guard basically one through four. Like he guarded when he was in Minnesota, he guarded Trey Young when the, the Wolves yep. came to Atlanta. And then he played a lot of backup four for the Hawks when after he was traded. So I think he liked that kind of defensive versatility, um, the, the quickness, the strength, the tenacity, like I mentioned. And, you know, he's a guy that if he can stand in the corner and shoot 35%, that's not great. He's not starting for you. He's probably not even a, a 10 or 12 minute a game guy for you. But if that's his role, if that's all you need him to do, and he can bring everything else on the defensive end, he's a fine player to have at the end of your rotation um, and, and not really a bad backup option if you if someone gets in foul trouble, if there's an injury, or if you need to change things up with just kind of a different energy off the bench. Uh, he can bring you that, provided he can shoot at at least a passable rate, which he mostly did in his you know 21 games in Atlanta down the stretch. But obviously you need a bigger sample size to really draw a conclusion about how that's going to carry forward into the next few years. Yeah, and there's there's some indicators that would tell you that maybe he's okay as a shooter. Now, granted, if you want to be a pessimist, you would point to the last two seasons he has a 46% true shooting, and that's very bad. But almost 70% free throws for his career, which is not great, but not terrible, um, and career 33% from three. And if that number is real, like he's an NBA player. Is he, is he a good NBA player? Probably not. But I, I tend to like, I think we both tend to like Graham, um, especially in a small role. Like, you know, defensively, he's not a huge block and steal guy, but your point earlier about his rebounding is um, is a good one. Especially in Atlanta, he was crashing offensive glass a lot. He's, he's aggressive. He plays really hard, like you said. And I think he's just in the right place at the right time defensively. And there's a lot of value to be had with someone who is versatile, who is big and strong. I know he's like, he's always, I think he's listed at 6'5", but he's a bulky, strong 6'5", to where he can defend most power forwards. And that is a helpful guy I think you know ideally to cut this you know put it in a very plain sense I think if you were looking at trying to pay Trayvon Graham real money to be in rota- in a rotation that would, that would that would not be a great option but if you can get a guy like Trayvon Graham on the minimum or close to it to be your fifth forward that's the kind of guy that I would be I would like to have in that role he's, he's, a, he's definitely a quality locker room guy and if you need him you can play him 12 minutes a game but also I think going into the season if you're healthy you don't want Trayvon Graham in your rotation probably but you know, having that kind of useful, versatile piece who can defend at a pinch and not just kill you on offense is a nice depth piece to have, and that's kind of what the Hawks might be looking for if they want to bring him back on the minimum. Yeah, and I'll also add 3 out of 13 on corner threes with the Hawks, 9 out of 19 on non-corner threes. So I think both yeah, of those are probably... Sign me yeah, up. 47%. I think both those are probably um, outliers, the, yeah. the former in the negative direction the latter in the positive direction. So both of those will probably regress toward the mean. Um, not good at the rim. You know, like you said, he, he's very limited on offense. He's really just standing in the corner and shooting. And I, I mentioned, you know, he can do a little bit of that attack a closeout and shoot a floater type of stuff. But really, he doesn't have much of an offensive game beyond catch and shoot jumpers. But he's one of those guys that doesn't really need to. You know, he's I think he's a, a player who knows his role. He knows what he is. He knows what he needs to do. Um, and, and those guys are valuable, you know, where, where you can just kind of plug them in. You're not asking them to do a lot. They're not trying to do too much. Um, and, and, you know, you, you said it well, like if he's in your rotation at a high salary, like you're probably not feeling great, but as kind of a break in case of emergency option, uh, you could do worse than Trevion Graham. 
Yeah, that's well said. I think if you're going into this offseason, if you're the Hawks, you're not prioritizing Travion Graham. But if he would like to stay on the minimum and you want to give him that contract to be you know, the 13th, 14th guy in your team, that is totally fine. Um, to your point about his offensive game, before we move on, um, his career usage rate is 12%. And that, that is uh, obscenely low. Which is correct. I mean, it's, it's what he, it's what it should be for someone of his ilk offensively. But I just kind of paste the picture of how little of an offensive piece he is. But you rather have that guy who knows what he can do and what he can't do to play, come in, play defense. And honestly, if you were gonna pick, you know, this is probably cherry picking to some extent. But if you were gonna pick one guy on the Hawks roster to like lock down Kawhi Leonard at the end of the season, um, it might it might have been Travion Graham. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just be, I mean, it's one thing, like, and you won't need it necessarily unless you get in that situation where you're in a playoff series and things get weird and maybe you get an injury and you just have to have that be your whole role. But he would he would do a good job against a big physical number one wing, probably as good of a job as anybody on, on the roster would would do. And that's that's a very specialized thing. But again, in, in this in this breaking case of emergency kind of role, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world to have on your team. Yeah, we got to get Danny LaRue in here and start the uh, Travion Danny, Graham. Danny loves Travion Graham. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I've always liked Trayvon Graham. Uh, I think, yeah, we could probably leave it there for now. He's just, he's a guy we've described, I think, pretty well. Uh, not flashy in any way. And, and by the way, if they moved on from him, I wouldn't be upset about that either. Yeah, like, yeah. it's totally fine if he's not on the team. But if he is on the minimum, that's totally fine too. Okay, uh, we'll go to the main event now. And the uh, the one guy who we know is going to be on the team, and we know he's going to be a, a big part of the team next season, and that's Cam Reddish. Um, we'll go broad strokes to start off with. I'm going to just say this out loud. Um, Cam's rookie season kind of went exactly how I thought it would go. Um, and it's, it's kind of the way that I even talked about it going quite a bit before the season began. Take your court- victory lap. Well, I am. I'm going to do that a little bit right now. <laughs> but uh, it's just, I say that just because it's interesting, and I'm not sure how indicative it is in the future, but... You know, the core muscle injury he had at Duke, all the stuff from going back to Duke, uh, the fact that he lost the whole summer, it was a it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to be bad at the, end of, at the beginning of the year, and people didn't want to listen to that. But uh, anyone who n- was following the team closely and hearing, like, it was he was always going to be bad early in the season, and he was. He was very bad on offense. But, you know, long story short, and we'll, and we'll dive deeper now, obviously, offensively it was brutal early, but defense was was pretty good from the beginning, and it was quite good throughout this whole season, especially, especially for a rookie, and then the offense came alive, he started making more shots, and now, um, I would, now it's it's kind of funny, I went from telling people not to panic in November, to telling people now not to get too over-aggressive, because people are assuming that, that the guy that he was in March is now the guy he's just going to be from now on, and uh, that's, that'd be nice, he was, he was quite good at the end of the season, but, uh, all things, all things considered, I think it's probably fair to say if you pay close attention to Cam Reddish um, throughout the year and didn't just look at the overall stats, you're probably put, you're probably feeling pretty good about the way that Cam um, sort of transformed himself and the way that he's uh, sort of performed at the end of the season. Yeah, he, he closed out really strong. I think his last 24 games or so, he shot like 41% from three or something on you know five four or five attempts per game, yeah. um, which is obviously very, very good. He was a, you know, as much as he was just terrible at the start of the season, the Hawks were actually, for the entire year, they were a net positive with him on the floor on both ends of the court, actually. So, like, you know, he was killing their offense early, but I think it's a testament to the way he sort of adapted and figured things out later that they were able to, to you know, be positive on offense with him on. That's not saying much because they were still really bad, but <laughs> yes. relative to, to what else they were dealing with, like, you know, he, he was... 
he was comparatively okay, I guess. Um, he was my favorite player on the team to watch this year, and and not like from a game to game stand. Not like he, my favorite player in a given game to watch. I don't like his game the best, although I do like his game. But just to watch from the start of the season to the end of the season, the the transformation, the development, um, the sort of feeling things out, I thought was really really fascinating. I remember like the first preseason game when we were kind of standing around his locker waiting to, to talk to him. He like looked at Vince Carter and he was like, he like shrugged. He's like, what do I do? How do I do this? And it, it sort of, it sort of reminded you like, okay, th- this guy doesn't know anything about the NBA. He's figuring all of this out on the fly. Not to mention he's coming off a of surgery. He had a kind of a weird year in college. Um, he's 20 years old. It was just no, a, no summer, no summer league, nothing like, he yeah, just was he was ice just cold. really thrown into a, a tough situation. And, and you could tell early, he had no clue how to navigate it. He just had absolutely no idea what he was doing on the court, at least on offense. Um, he, he didn't really know how to be an NBA player, which really no rookie does unless you're Luka Doncic and you've been playing for five years in, in Europe before. Um, so I, I just thought watching him figure things out sort of on the fly over the course of the year was really cool and really fascinating. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad for him that he was able to figure things out. Do I think that he's going to just kind of pick right back up next season and be a 40% three point shooter and, and 28 minute a game rotation player? Maybe not. Um, but I do think he'll level out somewhere between where he was at the start of the year and where he was at the end. And I would, I would probably guess he'll be better on the whole next season than he was this year, as most rookies are. Yeah. But I, I don't think he'll reach quite the level that he was in the last 20 games of the year. Yeah, that, that's probably safe to say. And just to, this is a, it's only one stat, but I think it's the, it's the one that paints the clearest picture. So I'm going to cheat a little bit here. Uh, his true shooting percentage for the season was 50, was 50%, which is pretty bad. It's not incredibly bad, but it's not good by any means. Now, if you go month by month though, it kind of paints the picture. Uh, 27.9% true shooting in, in October. Uh, that's only five games, but uh, that's as bad as it possibly could be. 42.8% in November. That's dreadful. 46.7% in December. Still dreadful. Then he makes the leap. 54.3% in January, which is like league average. 57.2% in February, which is above average and, and very good. And then March, only a four-game sample size, 67.2% true shooting. So it went up every month. Um, and like you said, you lose this uh, three-point shooting only, but even his true shooting, which kind of takes everything to, in, into account, the last 27 games, which is basically January 1st to the end of the season, hit a 57.4% true shooting percentage. Now, that that's actually quite good, especially for a rookie, but that's good for anybody on the wing. But prior to that, um, so basically first half of versus second half of his own season, it was 42% true shooting in the first half, 57% in the second half. So is he as bad as he was early? No way. Is he as good as he was late? Um, right now, I would say no. So to your point, like he'll probably land somewhere in the middle. And that's not a shot at him by any means. I think people know that I was high on Reddish coming in. I, 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 would, have, I would have had him higher than the Hawks drafted him at 10. I would have had him around 5 or 6 on my board. But um, it's not a shot at him to say that like I don't think you can assume growth for anyone. This is not a Cam Reddish-specific thing. But you know, I can't. You can't assume linear growth. I think there's a little bit of this because I know Hawks fans were already in love with Reddish well before he even became a Hawk. That now they just assume he has arrived and is now a star, and it's not. I, I would not go that far just yet. I think there is a lot of potential here, and we'll talk about his defense in a second, which is already quite good. I just I worry a little bit that uh, his performance in February and March is not indicative of where he actually is. But I'm way more confident that the beginning of the year is not 
indicative. I think it's closer to where he was at the end of the year. So if you want to be positive about that, I think it is in the middle. But I would uh, I would trust. Like for instance, I, I would probably say the closest thing that I would project for him is what he did in January, where he was like a league average true shooting guy, and he was a solid offensive player. Like not not like really good, not bad, just kind of in the middle. That's kind of where I think he is in offense right now. And if you factor that in with his clearly high-end defense, that's still a good player. And by the way, he's still 20 years old. Yeah, I think he'll be an average rotation player next year. Which, like, for the Hawks, I think that's that's fine. Like, they, they're going to have other players who are better than him. He's not going to have to carry a huge load. So if he's your fourth option as an average player, I, I think you feel okay about that. I am curious to see, like, what his usage is going to look like. He kind of hovered around that 18, 19% all season, 23, almost 24% in, in March. But like you said, that's only four games. So I, I wonder how big a part he's going to be in the offense. I'd imagine he's around 20%, maybe 21, um, again, about league average. So I think you can expect maybe league average production from him, both in terms of efficiency, uh, usage, just the, kind of the way he looks. I, I think that's kind of the baseline for him. And if he's better than that, great. Uh, if he's worse than that, you know, that's maybe a little concerning, but like you said, growth is not always linear. I think the biggest area we saw as much as the the shooting really came around and he started to figure that out. I thought it was his, his shooting at the rim and especially in transition yep. that really kind of represented his growth the most where at the start of the year, I mean, I remember like at least five or six plays off the top of my head. And I'm sure there were many more where he would just barrel into three guys in transition try a hopeless reverse layup <laughs> that was never going to go in. And and you could see it coming a mile away. I mean, it was like I would turn to you when he'd get the ball at half court and say, this is not going to end well. I was going to say, sure, it, it, was really, it was really a running joke between um, all of us that, I mean, people on people on the internet as well, but in person, every you never really had a lot of confidence when Cam had the ball going toward the rim early in the yeah. season. It was not going to end well, and uh, the numbers reflected how bad it was. And they honestly poisoned the full season. Um, but at the end, to your point, it was much, much better. Like, he kind of just figured out the craft of it all. It wasn't right. just, like, barreling with no plan. I think you saw more, a lot more patience and, and even more assertiveness, as weird as that is to say, because he was so assertive early on, even though he had no plan. Um, it was sort of he would catch. He was more decisive. He kind of knew where he was going. He had a little bit more shake, um, some more moves, just ways to kind of get to the rim as opposed to just barrel toward it. Um, and I also think that just adding strength was was big for him where you know he he's not jacked by any means. And he, he's like uh, visibly he's not that much bigger than he was at the start of the year. But I think just learning how to play through contact, you saw more and ones, you saw more kind of crafty finishes um, going into contact and challenging rim protectors towards the end of the year, getting the line more often um, and, and just sort of being a, more of a presence around the rim rather than just this this sort of uh, runaway train that, that doesn't have any force behind it because he was, you know, he just was so skinny and, and still is to some extent. But at the start of the year, it's just like when you're that frail and you have no plan and you're not a great athlete, it's just, it's not going to end well for you at the rim <laughs> yes. um, when you're doing what he was doing. And so I was really encouraged to see him figure that part of the game out as much as the shooting was encouraging. Um, and we can talk about that as well. But I just thought the the patience and the understanding of how to, to get to the rim and then finish when he got there was, was really good to see. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And that's probably the single biggest thing. You know, a lot a lot was made, and rightfully so, of his three-point shooting, especially, uh, improving. And that was always going to happen. Like, there was no no one, even if you were not a Cam Reddish believer, no one thought he was going to shoot 20% from three. That was not a thing that was ever going to happen. Uh, and I said this consistently, I think you did as well, that the bigger, the bigger concern with Cam on offense was always his stuff around the rim rather than his shooting. Um, there is a divide on what people think about his shooting in general, like whether he's going to be a good shooter or simply an adequate one. And that does, that is a meaningful distinction that we, that I'm not sure of just yet, but the stuff around the rim was, was my number one concern with him all the time on offense was that he was bad around the rim in college. He's not a great athlete, um, but him picking up, a little bit more craft and sort of figuring out ways to get around defenses and um, be a little bit more efficient around the rim is helpful. And, you know, the season long numbers, people tell themselves a little bit with uh, whether they watch the Hawks or not. I've heard some national stuff in the last couple of weeks. that's kind of funny about Reddish because if you, if you didn't pay attention to the Hawks and I can't blame you for not paying attention too much to the Hawks, but if you didn't, you just saw his season long numbers. And honestly, even with the uptick, they're still bad. I mean, his because of how bad he was early on offensively, if you looked at just his season-long numbers, no splits, no nothing, he looks like a really bad offensive player. And I, I get it. But he was not that same guy in the second half of the season. He was better than that. Um, how much it you know how much it keeps improving is the big question. But uh, I think the season long numbers do not tell the whole story. They do tell you that he was really bad early, and that's true. But um the improvement was really something to uh, point out, even if the uh, the overall numbers didn't really didn't paint that picture. Um, I'm going to ask you this: What do you think is his? And this is something we're we're still just guessing, but it's sort of informed guessing. What do you think is his true talent three point percentage moving forward? Like, do you think he's a a legitimate high end shooter that's shooting like 38 percent from three on real volume, or is he someone that's more of like a league average? You know, someone you have to guard, but someone who's not going to like bend defenses. Mm, that's a good question. It, it's it's tough. A lot of it depends on the volume. A lot of it depends on the the difficulty. You know, is he taking off the dribble shots? Um, is he coming off pick and roll, and and sort of creating threes for himself? I think he's probably not doing a ton of that as long as Trey Young is on this team because he just he won't have the opportunity even if he comes decent at it. Like he's just not going to have the chance. I would say like thirty seven percent maybe on yeah, on six attempts or something. That's about what I was what I would say too, and you know, again, we there's not that much sample size here. We only have this year where he was 33 percent on some pretty decent volume. Honestly, he still attempted. I'm looking now 4.3 3 pointers per game, and that's you know that's pretty decent sample for someone who was playing not that much you know, on a per hundred possessions basis. It was uh, 7.5 attempts per hundred possessions. That's pretty good volume for a rookie that wasn't shooting well early in the year. And by the way, free throw shooting is good indicator, 80% there. I think his jumper, he's never going to be Kevin Herter, I don't think, as a three-point shooter. But I, I do think that it would not surprise me if he, if we were looked up in two years and said, Ken Reddish is an above-average shooter. He's, again, not going to be like a elite, elite shooter. But uh, I have no reason to think that it won't work. I mean, his, his mechanics were kind of sloppy early on. They got a little bit better. Um, that was noticeable even to people that are like like me that's – I know a little bit about this. I'm not. I'm not a shooting coach, and I could tell you that his mechanics were all over the place early in the year. His feet were always going in the wrong places. He had some hitches. Um, once he figured that out, the, the results kind of followed. Um, and as long as that those mechanics stay solid, I think he will be a solid shooter. Um, but I think part of the evaluation with him is like in terms of his ultimate ups, upside offensively is how good of a shooter is he, and we're all kind of guessing on that one. I think. Yeah, I actually just recently talked to Marlon Garnett, who was Reddish's sort of primary player development coach this season. 
about that, like the, the shooting transformation. And he mentioned a few things. I also watched every single one of Reddish's three-point attempts this season, which I don't know why I subjected myself to that, but I did. But one of the things, of them, by the way, that's a lot. That's a lot of shots. <laughs> it was it was a lot of shots. Um, but one of the things that that Coach Garnett mentioned was a the footwork, which which I think was noticeable to everybody. I mean, even yep. like at practice, just watching him shoot around after practice, he really just did not have consistent footwork. He struggled to get the shot off quickly because he wasn't doing his work early. He wasn't setting himself up to catch and just immediately shoot. He had to catch, and then he would set himself up and then shoot. And in the NBA, that's just not fast enough. Uh, the other thing is, like, sh- off shooting off of any movement was a real challenge for him because he couldn't get his feet squared up. He couldn't get his shoulders square and face the basket. And, and you just saw a lot of different trajectories on the shot because he, he wasn't squared up and he wasn't shooting a consistent shot. And one of the things that Coach Garnett mentioned that I hadn't noticed before was he – I'd sort of noticed it, but not in this specific – way uh where he would early in the year when he shot he would like after he followed through he would his left arm would sort of fall down in sort of this arc motion like out to the side and sort of drift away from his right hand and i didn't really see any evidence that that was noticeably affecting the shot but i would imagine like doing that on every single shot and and he did tend to miss left on those on those shots when he missed so he, he really cleaned that up over the course of the year. He still does it a little bit. He still leans left and, and sort of fades back a little bit on some of his jump shots. So there's still stuff to iron out. But when you go and watch some of his attempts, like his first 50 attempts of the year, for instance, compare that to his last 50, I do think there are noticeable mechanical differences. It's not like he overhauled his entire shot or anything, but but he really did work with the coaching staff pretty hard on just trying to tighten up his mechanics and, and tweak what needed to be tweaked while sort of keeping the basic structure of his shot intact. Uh, the other thing I worried about a little bit was he has kind of a low release point. It's a little bit like to the right side of his chin, which for a, a tall guy is not a huge concern because he's that's you know compared to a, a guard, that's still a pretty high release point. But I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to move that up just a little bit, maybe an inch or two um, over the course of his career. But I think, you know, visually, when you just watch the way he shot the ball at the end of the year, Compare it to the start. I think there's a lot of reason to be encouraged that if he if he sustains those mechanics, that the shooting from from the second half of the year, even if it won't be 40 percent, I think could remain around that 37 percent range. It's going to be closer to the high end than it would have been to the low end. Yeah, that's interesting, and I think that uh, backs up my uh, very amateur look with a more professional look from uh, old Marlon Garnett, who I like. Um, but yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I think, uh, I and, and to be true. clear too, he he still does need to work on his footwork and balance oh, yeah. a lot. Like he moving to his right, like coming off a screen, for instance, moving right, he just doesn't have that shot. He's not able to get his feet square and his body square quick enough to really get that shot off. He kind of has to catch, put his foot down, and then pivot and set his foot down again before he takes the shot, even in, in like uncontested warmups. So that's something I would expect him to work on over the summer and and make that a little bit quicker. Moving to his left, he can get it off pretty quick. But again, you run part of the reason he's able to get it off is because he doesn't really stop himself and set himself. So then you get that drift and the fade to the left, which affects the shot. So there's still a lot of balance, a lot of footwork stuff that needs to be cleaned up. But he did take noticeable strides in those areas over the course of the year. So I think there's reason to believe that even if he's not going to be an elite shooter and like an elite off-ball mover coming off of screens, that he could be like a, a pretty fluid and versatile shooter. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm in agreement with that. And, you know, 
he does have some on-ball ability as well. I think some of his bigger supporters probably overrated a little bit because, you know, for instance, he still had more turnovers than assists for the season this year. 96 turnovers to 87 assists. And that was something actually where his, his, his shooting percentages got better throughout the season, as we've chronicled now repeatedly. That actually didn't improve. Um, his turnovers, his, his assist turnover ratio actually was about the same throughout. So if you're looking for a red flag a little bit, it's probably that. And I think um, his creation ability is might be a little bit overrated by some at this point. But he does, he does have it. He's still a guy who does have some skill with the ball in his hands. He does see things developing. Um, he, you know, early at, at lower levels, especially you know high school stuff. He was sort of that on ball point forward type. I think it's a little bit overrated, honestly. But you know, he's got more ability than a lot of guys of his size um, would have to kind of initiate offense and maybe be a secondary creator. Never going to be a primary guy, I don't think. But secondary-wise, he does have a lot of that skill set that could add some more. And uh, I, you could sort of see if everything came together between the shooting and the creation, you start to get into that, you know, star-level offensive upside category, which I would not project. But if you wanted to say that everything worked out the way that it possibly could, maybe you get there because he does have that kind of skill level. Yeah, and I think you saw at the beginning of the year there were times, and, and throughout the year as well, but there were times where he would see a pass, but it would the window would close before he could get it off. And that was that was really when the game was just moving too fast for him. And I think as much as the game slowed down for him, I do think that's an area where the more experience he gets, the more the game slows down, the more accustomed he becomes to the NBA speed. You know, those windows are going to start looking wider. He's going to start to pick up on those reads a little bit quicker. I'm not sure he'll ever be an elite passer, but I think he's got enough vision. He's got enough fluidity with the ball. Like he doesn't need to bring the ball to two hands before he makes a pass. I think he can pass off the dribble. Um, you know, he's got the the height and the length so he can see over the defense if he figures out, you know, how to see over the defense. And he's got he's he's able to kind of create passing angles with his size and with his length. So that'll be beneficial. Um, but again, he, he's not going to be a a five, six, seven assist primary ball handler type of guy. But on this team, he doesn't really need to be like, if he can just be a, you know, run 10 pick and rolls per game and, and work some second side action with John Collins or Clint Capella after Trey Young gives the ball up like that's, that's good enough. Cause then you also have Kevin Herter who can do that. I think Deandre Hunter could project as that kind of guy. And then obviously Trey is, is running a million pick and rolls per game and he's your primary ball handler. So you don't need another guy to, to dominate the ball in the pick and roll. You just need players who can do enough of that when they're forced to and then capitalize on the other opportunities that they get. Yeah, and I think he's a good fit with Trey Young for a lot of reasons. Um, what you just described offensively is one of them, and we'll transition to the defense a little bit because I want to spend some time on the, on, the, on the defensive end of the floor. But that, that's the other big reason is that Cam was very good defensively overall, um, not even just by rookie standards. Like He was a good defender this year, flat out. Um, just even compared to everyone around the NBA, you know, still, you know, high block rate, high, high story for, for his position, pretty good rebounding numbers. He graded out as a good defender um, by pretty much all of the advanced metrics. One of the better guys on the Hawks roster by both 538's Raptor model and PIPM, for instance, like, you know, it was good defensively. And that, that wasn't a surprise to people that watched him closely at Duke. That was something I was really high on coming into the, coming into the year as well Is that, you know, I thought was, I thought we thought he was overrated offensively and underrated defensively. And I think defensively it really popped. And I think Travis Schlenk gave a quote to either Sarah Spencer, or Chris Kirchner, one of them about how, you know, they were talking about Cam being one of the best defenders in the league. Um, I'm not sure I'd go that far. Um, that, that was future facing, by the way, not 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 right now. But I think 
he has every tool that you would want other than like he's not the most explosive athlete in the world but he's quick he's long he really knows what to do on and off the ball like it's it's not a, it's not too aggressive to say that uh he is he's Atlanta's best defensive prospect right now um which is not what you would expect it to say after you draft DeAndre Hunter um in the same draft and uh, giving reputation wise but Kim was flat out better than Hunter was defensively this year and I think Hunter will improve but uh that's not to say anything about the fact that uh, Reddish um was quite good and I I I feel like I've, I've been effusive about it all year long but it's worth talking about just how good he was defensively yeah, he's really fun to watch on defense, too. You know, when he's making plays, and, and that's the thing that separates him from Hunter, is he's much more of a playmaker yep. on defense, both on and off the ball. You know, he's got really quick hands. He's more agile than he is explosive, which on defense, it, you know, it's more valuable to be agile and explosive. He gets over screens well. He's he's pretty fluid, um, and, and he can sort of he can sort of take risks without gambling, if that makes sense, because he's so long. He can be in the passing lanes and make plays, but he doesn't have to put himself out of position necessarily because he's got good length and he's got good recovery speed. Um, I think there were times, at least when I watched him in college, which admittedly was not a ton, but I think when he played, you know, when he when he played the UNCs, when he played the Virginias, and he had that that one-on-one matchup, I think you saw him lock in on defense and really, you know, embrace those. Okay, I'm guarding the other team's best player type of games. It the effort waned a little bit when he was off the ball or when he wasn't guarding another elite player. But I think maybe even because of the offensive struggles early, he really had no choice but to commit on defense. That was kind of, I mean, that and the fact that they'd already invested a top 10 pick on him. But that was really his only path to getting on the court because they weren't playing him for his offense. So they needed him to contribute something on the defensive end. And I think, you know, to his credit, he, he bought into that role and he put forth, I think, much more of an effort on defense than he did in college and the flashes that we saw at Duke uh, were, were a little bit more consistent and, and translated into to real production on a more consistent basis in the NBA. What really surprised me was just the off ball instincts, you know, how often he was in the right place, how often he made the right rotation. He's still not a, a huge communicator on defense. And that's something that he and everyone else on the Hawks are going to have to get better at, but he, he mostly makes the right rotations. He's got really good instincts when you can fly through the passing lanes, come over and you know get a strip on a on a weak side rotation or something like that, we saw that a few times. And then obviously just his ability to hound the ball and and poke it away and just be a pest on the ball. I think that's the thing he's really going to have to commit to because uh, he he might be the team's best option on point guard. I, I, in fact, I think it's it's pretty clear that he is at this stage. So he's going to spend a lot of time fighting over screens, you know, staying attached to ball handlers' hips trying to, to you know, get his hands in, in the cookie jar, so to speak, um, and, and, and defend the ball. You know, he's, he's not going to spend as much time off the ball as, say, DeAndre Hunter might next season because he's their best option guarding on-ball guys. So I think you know, just sharpening up his point of attack defense, he's already pretty good at it, but you could always stand to get better, especially if he's going to be kind of their primary option in that role next season. Yeah, and uh, I want to put that out too. Like they asked, you know, Reddish and Hunter get compared to each other all the time, and that's always going to happen. They're in the same class, etc. Reddish, they've asked, and I think rightfully so, to kind of guard down, and he's been guarding a lot of guards, like you've said. Like he's been defending a lot of guards, and that works. Um, he is long, like he's six eight and long, and he can play up to small force. But you know, he's not the most physical guy in the world. It's more about you know length and aptitude and feel kind of stuff and he's very good at all of it I think ultimately your point is a good one in that he's gonna he's gonna be the guy that they asked to guard 
you know, like perimeter based players with the exception of the, you know, maybe the big, the biggest, most physical small forwards, like your Kawhi's or LeBron's might be more Hunter. Um, just because Hunter is bigger and longer and more, and probably just more physically strong. And, um, Hunter is more of an on ball guy, um, against those kind of guys. Um, whereas Reddish is actually much better off the ball than Hunter is at this point in time, but it's good to have options. And right now, I mean, pretty comfortably Reddish was the best defender that the Hawks had on anyone basically one through three this year unless you want to say Bembry maybe was in the same category but he just didn't play he just didn't play enough to kind of be that and Reddish is so much longer um yeah he's just good already and I think there's reason to believe he'll get better I think the uh effort thing going back to college is a good point that you're making because I agree with you but it's also you know I think this is a trend Reddish was a legitimately uber elite high school prospect, and I would say most guys that are at that level have effort issues defensively, um, just because they don't have to yeah. play defense. <laughs> uh, right. And I think Cam probably figured out sometime along the way at Duke, but especially to your point in the NBA, like there's no option anymore. Like you're not the best offensive player on this team. You have to play defense, and I think he knew that right away. And the Hawks did a pretty good job of instilling that in him, but. Uh, that's uh, it's a pedigree thing too because I think that's not even guys that have tools often struggle, especially early on, to kind of figure out oh I have to play defense now because they just never done it before like all the time. Yeah, completely. I I, I believe that too. I, that's definitely a trend I've noticed where like just these blue chip high school players often are not you know the most locked in defensive players. And I, I asked Reddish about like you know because because I you know I didn't really say as much, but I sort of hinted around the fact that the defensive effort wasn't super consistent in high school or in college. And I kind of asked him like, you know, what, what has gotten into you basically that you've been so good in the NBA and so consistent. And he mentioned like when he was younger, he really like enjoyed playing defense and his dad was a coach and made him play defense. And I think that's probably something that slipped away as he became more of an offensive centerpiece at the lower levels. But I think tapping back into that, that defensive history and, and I mean, it does seem like he enjoys playing defense he seems to really take pride in it and take enjoyment and he, he, and he in feels making it so plays. well too like you, you can yeah. tell it's he's he has a natural feel defensively that rookies just don't have exactly i mean you don't you don't see a guy play off ball defense the way that cam reddish did the on ball stuff you know it's definitely helpful but by far the more impressive trait especially for any rookie in the nba is the way that he played off the ball like it was legitimately impressive the way that he felt the game defensively this year that's kind of just natural i mean you can teach it to some degree but at the end of the day you have to feel it and he he has the feel that guys just don't have defensively yeah and it's really interesting too like how well and how quickly he felt the game on defense and how long it took him to feel the game on offense and how poorly he felt the game on offense at the start um i, I don't know I wonder if if there's a, I mean, how different the the feel is on on each end of the ball. I, I mean, I wouldn't know. I'd never played in the NBA, um, but I'm <laughs> like, I'd be curious to know. Like, is you know, what is the reason that some guys seem to have really great feel on one end of the floor and really poor feel on the other? And I think Reddish has gotten better on offense, obviously, just with yeah. you know his feel of the game. But uh, he, it definitely seemed innate on defense in a way that it did not on offense. You know, you mentioned him being the sort of primary on-ball guy and, and guarding up a position, I kind of view that as his his sort of natural place. You know, I kind of look at him as as a guard, and, and I, that's kind of the way I, I think he should view himself too because, you know, like you said, he's not super physical. He's not an amazing athlete. Um, I think I've said this before, but, like, I view him more as, like, a 6'4 guy than a 6'8 guy, and I think that's kind of the way he should play as well, and obviously it helps to have the tools of a 6'8 guy, the length, um, you know, just the sight line that he has 
are beneficial. But in terms of the way he applies his tools to the game, like he should play much more. And this, I think, applies more on offense, but on defense, too. He should play much more like a 6'4 combo guard than a 6'8 wing typically would in the NBA. And so I think he sort of realized that, that he's going to have to get by on his craft and, and his, um, his feel and his patience and, and sort of um, just, just his, his mental, uh, the, the mental side of the game rather than just being able to physically overwhelm guys. And I think that's true on defense too, where he's, he's going to have the night-to-night role of like a shooting guard on defense and in some cases a point guard because he's going to have to cover for Trey Young. So those are the types of, of areas that he should really be focusing on, in my opinion, this offseason because I think that's the role they're going to really ask him to play next season. Yeah, I kind of see both sides on that. Like on one hand, I agree. Like he's he's was a he's he was better guarding smaller players, especially on defense this year. Um, on the other, I made this point before, so forgive me if I've said this before on this podcast. But um, there are not many um, six eight guys with his kind of length that play shooting guard in today in the modern NBA. Um, guys his size are not shooting guards anymore. They are small forwards in general. And in general, and this is a point that I know we we, we referenced Daniel LaRue earlier, but I know Nate and Danny make this point all the time. Like, if you can find guys who are small forward size that can play small forward, that's probably the thing that every NBA team needs more than anything. So yeah. I, I kind of see both sides of that. Like, yes, he can play shooting guard. He obviously did play some shooting guard. And at the end of the day, two and three are interchangeable in a lot of ways. But, you know... I, I, it would be very helpful to me if he could also just be a, you know, maybe not a full-time small forward, but uh, I can kind of see both sides. Like, you don't want to have him playing smaller too much because that kind of negates a little bit of the uh, inherent advantage that you get from a guy who is a legitimate 6'8 and long. And those guys just are at a uh, premium in, in the NBA. Like, it helps to have two of them with, with the Hawks drafted two of those guys in the same draft. But whereas Hunter is more of a hybrid 3-4, we'll talk about him on the next podcast, Reddish is definitely more of a 2-3 than a 3-4 for sure. Yeah. But uh, there is value to just being 6-8 and long and uh, being that kind of prototypical small forward kind of alignment. For sure. And, and I think he, he definitely ends up playing both roles next season. I, I think more like, I'm, I'm sort of thinking offensively, where like, I just don't think he's ever going to have that, that Chris Middleton, Jalen Brown, Kawhi Leonard type of physical dominance just the ability to physically overwhelm people yeah he's just um, so thin i mean he's, and he's yeah. always gonna be thin. he's, and, always and he's gonna not be. A, he's not a great leaper he's not super explosive so he, he's gonna have to sort of figure out more of those guard skills which is, i guess is what i was sort of getting at um and then but also i do think on defense like guarding point guards is is not going to be unfamiliar for him oh, no. going forward because you know kevin herter is is a fine defender but he's not he's not a primary option on a primary ball handler um trey young you know i think we all know about his defensive limitations. <laughs> save it, so save it for the point guard pod, Ben. Save it for the yeah, point guard yeah. pod. Yeah, so, I mean, especially if they don't get, like, a defensive ace in free agency as a backup point guard, it, it's, I mean, a lot of that is going to fall to Reddish. And so... Um, it already, and it already has, honestly. It exactly, already yeah. But at the same time, like you mentioned, he does have the versatility to play the three, and you know, he played the, the nominal small forward in their most successful lineup this past season. So it's it's nice to have that versatility, a guy who can just slide across several positions and especially if that ball handling and, and playmaking comes along, you know, maybe you even use him as kind of a pseudo backup point guard. He's definitely not there yet, um, but but perhaps two, three years down the line. Um, but you maybe at some point you do need to figure out, OK, where is this guy best and, and how can we, you know, what lineups do we need to put him with and what position is he best at? How can we build around that? 
Um, but I think, you know, for the next season or two, I think just having that versatility, he's going to be asked to plug a lot of different holes. Yeah, and that's kind of the beauty of having Reddish and Hunter is that they kind of just do different things. I know they're the same height, but they're very different players in a good way. You know, Hunter is that more big physical hybrid 3-4, and Reddish could do, could do other things. And uh, it's not, you know... I know this is, it's such an easy thing to just be like, okay, what's, what's the starting lineup and how is uh, what one, two, three, four, five. But part of the, part of the allure of having a bunch of versatile players is that um, guys can do different things. Like I can already see the big argument going for next year. And I don't care about this as much as fans will, but fans are, fans are going to care about this because inevitably, even if they don't do anything else, um, in the off season, which they probably will, um, there's going to be a fight about where about who starts on the wing between the three young guys. Yep. Like I can already see that happening. I don't care about that, but fans are going to care. Oh, it's already happening. I know it's already been happening for a while. <laughs> but uh, and this year, you know, I think it was pretty clear early on that Reddish was the worst of the three because of the offense. But by the end of the year, that wasn't the case anymore. And now it's like, you know. We'll save it. We'll save it for later. But it's uh, that's going to be a thing that I'm going to be dealing with in my mentions for quite some time. I'm sure you already are and will be as well. So we'll do it. We'll save a little bit of that for the hunter podcast. But uh, we know it's coming, folks. I promise. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm just here to tell you that that doesn't matter all that much. They're all yeah. uh, very complimentary of each other, which is good. I mean, basically, they're going to have no matter who starts the lineup that they basically close the season with the Trey Young, Kevin Herter, Cam Reddish, DeAndre Hunter, John Collins lineup. Is going to play a lot of minutes next year. That's going to be one of their two oh, or three yeah. I mean, it was, most it was, it relied was, upon lineups. It was their number no one lineup what. this year, which is yeah. hilarious considering, you know, between the suspension to Collins and the injuries and the relative youth, to have that be your number one most used lineup this year, and, and that included both rookies, tells you a lot about what they see in the future. And I know right. they, add Cape- they add Capella, but, you know, and there will certainly be times when they have to play Capella at the end of games, and Capella will probably be you know, will be a prominent part of the team in a way that no other center was this year. But, you know, a lot of the time, the NBA plays small at the end of games, and you could see them closing with that lineup a lot. It would not I, be a I think big they surprise. Will. Especially yeah, if they don't add another even, piece. I could even see them, especially if Capella's on a rest plan next year, them starting that lineup in certain games, especially against your, your Brooklyn's, your Utah's, these small teams that don't really play a power forward. Like, that, I mean, they did that a few times this year, partly out of necessity, but next year, like if if Capella's, you know, sitting out with load management, or if he's injured again, which obviously you hope is not the case, but like they're they're going to be avenues for that that unit to start some games, and certainly they'll close some as well. Um, yeah, I mean, there's going to be two main lineups. It's going to be whoever starts, and then those five guys. So no matter what the starting lineup is, like those guys are going to have plenty of time on the floor. You just hope that that none of them, whoever the odd man out is, so to speak, that they don't bristle at the fact that they're no longer you know a quote-unquote starter <laughs> yeah that's always the uh the political game of it all and uh it gets even more dicey if when, when and if they sign joe harris or someone like that to uh add another body to the mix because uh keep in mind 49 million in cap space they're gonna they're gonna sign they're gonna sign or acquire another good player i'm pretty yes. confident in that so add another guy to the mix and it gets even it gets even even tougher but it's, it's a good problem it's, you're allowed to have more than five good players, Ben. I don't know if I, I'm not sure if you heard that before, but it's true. I thought we got rid of that rule once the Warriors broke up. 
That's true. I mean, I guess the Hawks have this core five that uh, they always refer to that blatantly ignores Clint Capella, who's like a very good NBA player, and he's not in the core <laughs> five somehow. I don't, I'm not sure how that works. And also Bruno. Give Where's the respect for Bruno? Well, I, I, I'm fine with that, honestly. Um, but, <laughs> and I like Bruno. This is a pro-Bruno podcast, but um, yes. I, I do think it's hilarious that they still that they're even now still referring to this yeah. core five, and it's like, guys, you just traded for Clint Capella. He's obviously part of your core. Like, he's very 25 obviously. years old. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, as a sidebar, to, to tie it all in, Derry Bembry and Clint Capella are the same age. You know what's crazy? I was looking this up the other day. Buddy Heald, Bogdan Bogdanovich, and Harrison Barnes are the same age. Uh, I, I believe you. Buddy Heald, you could tell me, is 34, and I would believe you. Um, They're all 27. Yeah, yeah that's that sounds right, honestly. Uh, the Hawks are obscenely young, um, and people have to be reminded of that all the time, but uh, it is... It did strike me as funny when I was going through, I was trying to get the Bembry comp to just kind of remind people how old he is relatively. And uh, he's the same age as Capella, and he's older than Scal, and he's older than Damian Jones. So, yeah. Sorry, DeAndre. You're kind of old. It's okay. All right, Ben, we've, we've done enough. We're almost an hour, including about 35 minutes of Cam Rush. That's probably enough for today. Uh, anything that you want to get off your chest before we get out of here? Anything you want to plug as well? I know you are um, dutifully um, keying along, as we all are during this dead time. Yeah, I'll just add that I, I really like Cam Reddish. I Like yes. you, I was high on him going into the draft, probably higher than the consensus. And uh, honestly, even like, I think I think groupthink scared me out of ranking him higher on my, not that, not that my draft board means anything, but on my personal list of prospect rankings, I think I was scared out of having him even higher than I wanted to have him just because so many people were low on him, which I understood. But um, yeah, that's that's only to say that like you, I've, I've been a, a fan of his for a little while. I, I you know, see a, a promising outcome for him in the next year or two and, you know, the rest of his career, really. So um, I, I was encouraged by what I saw. Like I said, really fascinating to just kind of track his growth from like a, a basketball puppy who just had no clue what was happening to a fairly quality NBA rotation player. That's a that's a hard transition to make. Uh, he I know he put in a ton of work uh, to, to make that transition. Getting healthy obviously helped, but you know, good on him to to sort of figure things out. And I, I hope for, for his sake that he can kind of carry that forward. Speaking of Cam Reddish, I should have a, a season review piece on him out in the next day or two, still working on how to tie that up and, and connect some of the ideas in it. But that should be out shortly. And then everything else is just SI.com slash NBA slash Hawks. Um, with as much turmoil as is going on at SI right now, uh, we're still – Going strong over at that Turning site. Along. Yeah. <laughs> for the for the time being, it's it's still going. So, um, yeah, that that's about it. Uh, I've enjoyed enjoyed doing this series with you. I can't wait to do the uh, remaining two episodes here. Yeah, two more to go, and uh, I, I actually assigned myself the Cam Reddish player review uh, for Peachtree Hoops. So I will try not to read yours until I'm done with mine, so that I will not copy you incessantly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think I mean, we'll honestly, just share I'll probably all our copy a lot of the ideas you said on this, on this well, podcast. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, so. that's part of the fun <laughs> of these pods is that, uh, it helps me to write things, helps you to write things and we'll start kicking stuff around and people hopefully are enjoying these. Uh, I know it's this kind of weird zone where we're still talking about basketball like it exists. And I think it hopefully will, um, again shortly, but, uh, in the meantime, I like talking about basketball and, uh, I appreciate you your willingness to do it again we have we have two more of these we'll do one more on the wings and then uh the uh what i'm officially calling the trey young podcast will be get will be uh part five because he's the centerpiece of that but um thank you ben for doing for joining us uh, by the way where can people follow your stuff on twitter again oh that's at b ladner underscore you tweet so often uh, after all and then, yeah it's um, so active 
Uh, I think that's my only social media account. So you, that's that's really where you can find most of it. Follow Ben on Twitter. Uh, he occasionally will tweet things. I try to get him to tweet more often, but uh, he's very smart, as I think people probably know from this podcast. So thanks, Ben. And uh, for everybody else, we will see you all next time.